0: There were two more murders, 15 miles away. When police arrived, arrived cetera, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cup of murder. No one should get to decide who lives and who dies. On January 2nd, 1981, a man was apprehended who killed 16 women because he felt a divine power told him to. So, if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Peter William Sutcliffe was born on June 2, 1946, to a West Reading of Yorkshire working-class Catholic family. He was a loner from a pretty early age and left school altogether when he was just 15 years old to begin a series of menial jobs like grave digging, which gave him a macabre sense of humor. And as he left his adolescence, he picked up a voyeurism habit in addition to his now pretty consistent employment of sex workers. One of these women stole some money from him after their meeting and Peter chased her down, returning out of breath and telling his friends to quickly drive away. Turns out he followed her into a garage and hit her in the head with a stone shoved in a sock. The police visited his home the next day and he admitted to hitting her, though he claimed it was only with his hand. She, not wanting to drag out a legal process, declined to press any charges. Somewhere in the middle of all of this, Peter met a woman named Sonia Sersma in 1967, and a little over six years later, the pair were married. Sonia, after several miscarriages, was told that she could not have children, and she sought comfort in an affair with an ice cream van driver. Now, while Peter had been described as a loner in the past, that was really the extent of his "issues. But as he grew older, he began developing some strange habits. On July 5th, 1975, just a year after getting married, Peter attacked a woman named Anna Rogulski. He knocked her unconscious with a ball-peen hammer and slashed at her stomach with a knife, leaving her for dead when a neighbor came out and found her. Anna survived her attack, but was left psychologically traumatized. He attacked a woman in Halifax named Olive Smelt in a similar manner but interrupted yet again, left his victim alive and psychologically damaged. Shortly after, he attacked 14-year-old Tracy Brown, but as he struck her in the head, a vehicle approached and forced him to flee. The young girl needed brain surgery, and it would take until 1992 for anyone to know her attacker's name. He was clearly ramping up, and on October 30, 1975, he was finally ready to take a human life. That was the day that Peter Sutcliffe, soon to go down in history as the Yorkshire Ripper, brought down his hammer on Wilma McCann and stabbed her 15 times in the neck, chest, and abdomen. This time, no one interrupted him, and he was able to finish the job he set out to do. About 150 officers attempted to solve Wilma's murder, and together they interviewed about 11,000 witnesses and suspects, none of which gave any solid leads. Next to fall victim to the Ripper was 42-year-old Emily Jackson, who was stabbed 52 times with a sharpened screwdriver in January of 1976. Before abandoning her body, he stomped down on her thigh with such force that he left a lasting impression of his boot, something police took as evidence. Marcella Claxton, just 20 years old, was attacked in Round Hay Park on May 9th while she walked home alone from a party and accepted a ride from a seemingly normal Peter Sutcliffe. When she got out of the car to use the restroom, Peter hit her with his hammer, but for whatever reason, left her alive. Unfortunately, while she was able to survive the attack, her four-month-old fetus did not. Marcella would later testify against her attacker at his trial. Irene Richardson, a Chapleton sex worker, was attacked in the same park Marcella was on February 5th. She was bludgeoned to death with a hammer and was mutilated with a knife post-mortem. Near her body, police were able to find some tire tracks that then created a very long list of potential suspects. Two months later, Peter murdered Patricia Atkins, a sex worker from Bradford, inside of her apartment. Left behind was a boot print that matched the one left on Emily Jackson. So far, it seemed that the Yorkshire Ripper only selected sex workers as his victims. But if that made anyone living in the area feel safe, he was about to change up his M.O. and create a new sense of fear. Two months after he killed Patricia, the Yorkshire Ripper took the life of 16-year-old Jane McDonald. Now, Jane was not only younger than the other victims, but she was not a sex worker by trade. This was Peter's way of saying to the community, no one is safe. Maureen Long was assaulted in Bradford that July, but after being interrupted, she was able to survive her attack. Unfortunately, a witness who gave a description of the car she saw speeding away from the scene gave inaccurate information. So, over 300 officers, 12,500 statements, and thousands of cars later, they were no closer to finding the Yorkshire Ripper. Jean Jordan was murdered on October 1st, 1977. Peter realized after leaving her body that the five-pound note he paid her just before killing her was traceable. So after hosting a party in his home, he returned to the spot where he left her body but could not find the note. So instead, he mutilated her corpse and moved it to a different location. Her body was found eight days later and in a secret compartment of her handbag was the five-pound note. It was traced to a bank where police were able to narrow down their list to the 8,000 employees who received it as their wage packet. Over the course of three months, they interviewed 5,000 of those men, including Peter Sutcliffe, but found that everyone's alibis were too solid. Peter had, in fact, been at that party and had a dozen or so guests that put him there around the window of her murder. On December 14th, Marilyn Moore was attacked, but survived and gave her description of her attacker. With her testimony, police dropped the bank search and focused on the tire tracks that were present at a handful of their crime scenes. In the meantime, Peter killed 21-year-old Yvonne Pearson by bludgeoning her to death, jumping on her chest, and shoving horsehair from a discarded sofa in her mouth. Unfortunately, her body would not be found until March of the following year. He killed 18-year-old Helen Ritka 10 days later, Vera Milward on May 16th, and Josephine Whitaker on April 4, 1979. After Josephine's attack, the police received a taunting call from the killer, claiming his name was Jack and that, despite the leads they had, none would bring them close to capturing him. The message would send their investigation off the rails and delay the very little progress that they had made. It was eventually deemed a hoax, and the caller was identified in 2005 via DNA as the unemployed alcoholic named John Samuel Hubble. These killings had been going on for four years now, and the investigators, who were working tirelessly to find the Ripper, were understandably frustrated. And Peter Sutcliffe had been interviewed about the case on nine separate occasions, but none of the information they had made him seem like a viable suspect. On September 1st, Peter committed his 16th murder when he killed 20-year-old Barbara Leach, a student at Bradford University. Peter was then arrested in April of 1980, but not in connection with the Yorkshire Ripper murders. No, he was arrested for driving while drunk and let out on bail while he awaited his trial, during which he killed 47-year-old Marguerite Walls and 20-year-old Jacqueline Hill over the course of just 28 days and attacked three other women who survived. On January 2nd, 1981, Peter was stopped by police for being in the company of a known sex worker named Olivia Reavers. When police checked his records, they noticed that his car had false plates, and he was arrested. While at the police station, noticing he looked a lot like the physical descriptions of the Ripper, Peter was questioned. The next day, police returned to the site where they arrested him and found a knife hammer, and rope that had been left behind at the time of his arrest. Police obtained a warrant and brought his wife in for questioning. After two days of intensive questioning, on January 4th, 1981, Peter suddenly declared that he was, in fact, the Yorkshire Ripper, but that he could not be held totally responsible for the murders because he was simply acting on the instruction of God, who wanted him to rid the world of these women. At his trial, he pleaded not guilty to the 13 murder charges against him, but guilty to manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. He was convicted on May 22, 1981, and is now serving 20 concurrent life sentences, which has been changed to a whole life tariff in 2010. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to what terrible thing happened on January 3rd. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.